Hey everyone, this is Dylan, your podcast host. Just wanted everyone to know that we're going to be sending out a survey about the podcast to our Z Prime mailing list to give you an opportunity to give us feedback on what you've liked about the podcast and what you hope to see going forward, as well as opportunities to get people involved that maybe you'd like to see on the show. Please keep an eye on your mailbox in the coming week or two to to participate in the survey. And if you're not on our mailing list and you'd like to be to get the survey, you can send me an email at dylan.lockwood at zprime.com, D-Y-L-A-N dot L-O-C-K-W-O-O-D at Z-P-R-Y-M-E dot com. Or you can direct message us on Twitter at zprimeresearch, and we'll make sure to get you that survey when we release it. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm doing okay, Dylan. I'm a little upset. Austin, um, either it was either yesterday or today, officially banned um, single-use. We had a ban on single-use plastic bags at grocery stores and stuff like that. Um, that was implemented back in 2013, and they actually just lifted the ban so stores are allowed to give out single-use plastic bags again so i'm a little upset about that i'm sad to see that ban go it definitely helped drive me to bring my own reusable bags to the grocery store um so i'm that was a little bit of a damper on my day i have to admit i mean you can still do it and I guess I kind of like the single-use plastic bags uh, solely in that they can be reused easily for uh, for poop pickup for dogs uh, or for makeshift bags of ice. That's true. You're all right. They do have other uses, so they don't necessarily have to be single-use. But I, overall, it did, like I said, it influenced me to start bringing my own bags, and I think that's why I'm sad to see it go because I think it would – influence other people to start bringing their own bags it may not do that if you didn't have that little push in the right direction but you're right there definitely are other ways to reuse it um, and it, people can still continue to practice bringing their own reusable bags to the store regardless of whether or not the ban is in place we got a guest today that i've been hoping to get on the show for a while we've got our good friend and strategy consultant shay Fabode. Uh, how are you doing today, Shay? I am good, Dylan, and uh, good to uh, be on the podcast. Finally, I've, I've listened to a few, so I'm a fan. I'm glad to be on now. And um, I'll share something I'm sort of pleased about. Um, about 30, 45 minutes ago or so, Scott Pruitt resigned. So, um, Wait, what? After yay. Yes, yeah, Scott just Pruitt resigned. Yeah, just just popped up. So. Uh, that's something I'm pretty excited about. But that being said, um, he's been replaced by Andrew Willer, and um, we still have a few things to, to dig in before we know if that's a good or a bad thing. But all in all, I think uh, unsurprising but exciting at the same time. Yeah, I uh, might, might see a... a change in direction at the agency or maybe not. I'm not, 
I don't know that much about the new guy. So you've been doing some work with us at Z Prime, uh, working with Aaron in research. How's that going? It's been going great. Um, I've I've been in the utility space for 15, 16 years or so, and um, at every point I've I've had a perspective and some thoughts about technology in the industry and the consumer in in the eyes of the utility and how the utility approaches and addresses the consumer. And it's great to be on the Z Prime side, seeing actual data that um, proves or disproves, yeah, as it may be, some of the, the views I've had and uh, the quality of the work here is pretty. The thing I wanted to talk about while I've got you here is uh, I wanted to talk, do something a little different than what we normally do, and talk about one very specific one very specific issue. Uh, from and the lessons we can and the lessons we can learn. Uh, I want to talk specifically about Puerto Rico. We've brought it up a few times in the podcast before, um, you know, in relation to like things like microgrids or grid resiliency. But uh, but mostly just as an example, I kind of want to dig a little more into the into the weeds on this. I mean, as everyone knows, uh, a year ago there was a there was a large hurricane, Hurricane Maria, that knocked out the entirety of the Puerto Rican electric grid, like 100% power loss. And uh, a good number of people also lost their lives. The numbers are different depending on who you're asking, but general consensus is that it's, it's in the thousands, it's in the thousands. Uh, So, but uh, yet just yesterday there was, there was an article that was host also hosted on Vox in English and that that said that uh, 99% of power has been restored. There's only there's less than just just shy of 2000 people still without power. And they live in mountainous regions that are hard to get the service out to. So that's sort of where we are now. Um, Let's take a look back. So Shay, uh, you've done you've done some reading on this. Why do you why was Puerto Rico's infrastructure so vulnerable? Was there a way they could have avoided losing all their power, or was the storm just too insurmountable for anyone? Uh, yes, it's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll give some context before I give what might be, frankly, an obvious answer here. But um, before the storm, the Puerto Rico uh, Power Authority, I believe PREPA, already had a lot that it was dealing with. Um, and most of it stemmed from financial issues and just uh, a business model and debt that um, had sort of crippled the utility. The, the, the generation capacity was around 5,800 megawatts with uh, peak demand, just a little over half that, about 3,000. Um, uh, the the region had 10 oil-fired fi- power plants, um, a few natural gas plants, and one coal plant. Um, renewables hadn't really picked up uh, beyond about 2.5% of total generation for Puerto Rico. So uh, what that sort of tells you is that it was a very 
I guess, centralized grid with a certain skew in one direction. Um, and so once the storms hit, and let's not forget the storms were were of, of a level that we haven't seen, um, hadn't seen before that happened. It was inevitable that the centralized infrastructure was was going to suffer a big blow. And so I guess the answer to the question is that there was very little the utility and the people of Haruko could have done about the blackout they experienced. Uh, that being said, they were already crippled before the storm came. So, In what capacity? Yeah, I guess um, as, as is the case with many other utilities and power grids across the world, everyone's moving towards uh, a more a smarter grid, more renewable energy, more distributed energy resources. Um, but to to transition to to that future, um, as everyone else is doing, uh, Puerto Rico needed money, and Puerto Rico didn't have any money. So um, that transition wasn't really happening anyway. Uh, in a weird twist, um, the storms probably provided an opportunity, and one shouldn't say this considering uh, people died, but uh, the the truth is the storm provided an opportunity to sort of do the work that was probably not going to be done because no one was going to fund the work. Truth be told, the, the, the situation is probably worse now in terms of them getting um, funding allocated to upgrading the grid. Uh, the bulk of the work was just bringing the generation, uh, sorry, the transmission, because the damage was primarily in transmission, uh, not generation. So, yes, there's there's work that's gone on to bring transmission back online. 99% of people have power. But there wasn't much, as far as all I've read, I haven't been to Puerto Rico, um, conversations I've had, all I've read, not much has been done in terms of moving the grid forward, frankly. Uh, and the money isn't there because the, the region now needs to allocate resources to not just power, but um, healthcare and a bunch of, of other needs that the people of Puerto Rico now have. It seems that with all this you know, additional cost of the storm recovery and the fact that they had to focus largely on bringing the grid back online, bringing, getting people's power back before, before uh, updating things. A lot of that money that could have been, that could have been used on updating the grid instead had to be used on reviving the previous still vulnerable infrastructure. So does that mean that this kind of, that if they, that they're still not going to be ready for another storm? Um, I guess the answer to that would be yes and no. Yes, in the sense that um, everyone was so focused on recovery and we're there now. Uh, so some of the work that was done to bring the grid, uh, the transmission system back up, it required new methods, new, um, you had uh, 
drones being flown in to map out where the work needed to be done, which reduced the, the time um, required to identify where the most work was. Um, you had uh, equipment that um, allowed modular reconstruction instead of uh, having to transport full equipment from uh, outside of Puerto Rico. You could break them down, bring them in, and utilize the updated processes uh, due to advances in technology. Uh, you could do the work using the resources that um, Puerto Rico didn't have before. And regardless of what happens beyond now, those methods and approach approaches to uh, recovery and um, know in the sense that uh, I'm, apart from just the financial constraints, you had a uh, change of, of, um, of personnel uh, with people um, resigning like midway into the recovery and so investigations going on into misallocation of funds. So no one really wants to put money there. That being said though, uh, we now have a better view of what the Puerto Rico grid looks like. And uh, for the interested entrepreneur, uh, the smaller companies that are looking for test beds for where to go deploy some of the uh, technology they're trying to put on the grid, there's probably no better place to go test it than Puerto Rico. The only other place that is very willing to take on new technology is Hawaii. And Puerto Rico has now, uh, due to the unfortunate circumstances of the storm, put itself in a position where um, there can be tests run on the grid to figure out what the most optimal state of the future grid should look like. Where should we put storage for when storms come? Um, what sort of storage will be uh, best suited for the use cases that we now realize are on ground? High up in the mountains, is there the opportunity to uh, develop microgrids for uh, those, those locations that it took the longest to get power back to? So that even if the, the transmission systems go out across uh, the region, you still have pockets of of uh, mountainous region where, to be honest, you probably have the most risk of, of health conditions due to no electricity um, and bad possible water. You want microgrids in those regions, and now we know where those regions are. And um, anyone looking to deploy, test and deploy, um, with no no real immediate desire for returns, frankly, but an opportunity to showcase the work you can do with your technology. Um, I think Puerto Rico is a great place for that. Yeah, from from what I've noticed, um, and two of the you know biggest challenges I've read about in relation to Puerto Rico, and I don't know as much about it as you do, Shay, but um, 
One of them being, uh, yeah, the allocation of funds, who is providing um, the money for the recovery effort, because it seems like a lot of different, there, there's money coming in from a lot of different places, and it's unclear around who is supposed to be bringing all of these different money, um, I'm blanking on a term, bringing together all these different like lines of cash and ways that money is coming in and strategizing um, around that. Everything, a lot of things seem to be happening in silos. So that's definitely one big problem I've noticed. And the other problem um, that, that they're having, Shade, that I think you hit on really is like that whole supply chain of the recovery um, effort in general. Um, getting things to the island is difficult and coordinating across the different organizations that are helping to do that is difficult as well. Um, so I think the fact that there are a lot of different people trying to help out and aid in this recovery has actually made it a little more complex um, than it could have been. So I think both, um, you know, the silos of the way that money, this the strategy is being funded or this project is being funded as well as um, the supply chain and, and management of it all has really created a, um, an environment where it's hard for them to move forward. But what Shay was saying around how now Puerto Rico is a place for testing these pilots, I think um, that's exactly right. And I'm really excited to start to see how these smaller startups are going to test their ideas um, in the field. I think that's one of the best ways that we as an industry right now can start to translate some of this research uh, that we're seeing. A lot of people are putting data and numbers out there around disaster recovery, but that has to be translated into action and things we can see in our community. And Puerto Rico will serve as a, as a space for people to start to test their ideas to make sure that the grid does in fact become more resilient in the future. So it'll be an interesting um, year, two years, three years, as we start to see uh, these pilots um, deployed within Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, just absolutely um, correct, Erin. But you, I, I, in conversations I've had, people point to, to the lack of coordination as a problem, but um, while it is, I, I won't deny it, 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 it is, what it did and what it continues to do, um, and I'll use some examples from the, this fantastic uh, Rebuilding Puerto Rico's Power Grid article that IEEE put out, uh, where you find entrepreneurs working with um, larger Solar companies, for example, in this example here, Sonnen, um, the German energy storage company, worked with a residential solar installation company in Puerto Rico to put, I think, 3.5 kilowatt solar arrays on, on roofs to, to create an 8-kilowatt-hour uh, eight battery system, oh, sorry, along with an 8-kilowatt-hour battery system to restore power to places where individuals had health conditions and needed this array. There was very little involvement of the government in these sort of uh, 
donation-based approaches to uh, solving the problem. I believe the about 15 systems were, were donated uh, and combined they cost about $350,000 or something. And to be honest, if the traditional methods of deploying those required assets, distributed energy assets, if the traditional approach had been what those entrepreneurs and those companies had to deal with, i.e., getting permits, ensuring that the location was inspected to, to make sure standards were being maintained and um, designing the array before you um, even go back to the uh, plant to to build the array. If, if, we, if we'd have to wait for all those things to happen, we'd still be talking about power not coming back to you those people until the last few weeks that everyone has seen power now. So yes, the the lack of centralized coordination um, was seen as a problem, but what it did was bring out the creativity in people. And uh, frankly, once systems get as large as utility systems and governmental systems tend to be, um, unintentionally roadblocks to innovation happen, and unfortunately, sometimes it takes disaster to, to knock those roadblocks out and um, have the people who want to do the work come in. So, uh, yes, problematic, but also uh, almost an opportunity, a clean slate opportunity if, if you truly have the will to, to help to, to move things forward. I think that, that totally makes sense how this kind of delayed process from the traditional way of recovering from disaster did create these small open doors of opportunity for smaller players to make a large impact. I think, um, yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And it makes us question how much of a, you know, does there have to be a shift in a total shift in thinking within utilities and big organizations on how they actually go about disaster recovery i mean does it become more decentralized in your it could be you know private um public private partnerships um more of those i'm I'm not sure but i think that it does kind of make us question that yeah the, the current strategy and how effective it is um in terms of you know deploying the personnel um and and things like that I don't know if that's the right way of looking at it. I think the better question might be, how do we change the thinking so that we can do this this kind of partnership and this kind of uh, and this kind of innovation at this scale without needing giant disasters to instigate it? Um, yeah. yeah, both both fantastic fantastic um, ways to look at this the same thing. And what 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 is um, without having an answer, because uh, these are large systems, these organizations and uh, regions they serve, and the traditional approach has been to, um, regardless of, of whether innovation is kicking in or not, provide stable, secure electricity at a price that is reasonable. And 
the same folk who do the work daily to maintain that traditional structure were able to flourish flying into Puerto Rico to help with the recovery. I think a, a lot of utilities across mainland USA sent teams to uh, Puerto Rico to help with the recovery. And they got to do the work they know how to do. Keep, bring back the power or keep the power on and help to manage a complex system because the utility system, the grid, is a complex system. And you had these folk who we, on the one hand, say they're the ones stifling innovation. We find them in a different circumstance in Puerto Rico after the disaster, diving in and being nimble on their feet and doing whatever it took to restore power to the residents of Puerto Rico. So I don't even know if it's a, it's a mindset shift. A mindset shift is required, but I think almost as much um, is an enabling environment. And I don't know what that, that means beyond it, this is really a problem with um, policies, not not adapting to the changes that both the environment is causing and innovation is bringing. What do you mean by policy in that regard? So I'll use the example of a traditional uh, IOU, investor-owned utility in a regulated region. Their traditional business model has been uh, recovering through rent charged to the customer uh, the the investment they've made on assets they've deployed to provide us power. That fundamentally constrains the utility because to deploy uh, smaller assets on customers' homes or or break up their regions into microgrids, um, it, it sort of makes it harder to recoup the money from customers on on smaller assets deployed. So uh, that that business model, which which was necessary when the centralization of the grid happened, that business model made sense then. Um, it no longer makes sense in all regions right now, but those utilities are constrained by the the commissions that rightly uh regulate how they run but as long as that policy of uh cost of service stays then it will be tough for those utilities to become as nimble and ha- as as um customer centric as they would like to be because their business model depends on on the policy of of asset recovery that the distributed grid totally blows apart. Yeah, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, so just based on the whole whole process that Puerto Rico has been through since the since the hurricane and everything that they're going to have to do going forward, what can we extrapolate from that 
that we can apply more broadly to the mainland grid or even to just other instances of uh, island grids? Uh, so I guess um, the the bigger the bigger question that we will have to ask about Puerto Rico and the mainland, frankly, is um, when will we stop just putting stopgap measures in place that will, if anything else happens, take us back to the uh, situation where darkness returns everywhere in Puerto Rico or whatever region this happens. It's it's a it's a broader question that, frankly, across the U.S. grid, um, since we have a U.S. audience, we're not prepared to deal with. Uh, there's a lot of just pushing the ball forward avoiding taking the making the decisions that need to be made to bring um, both resiliency and uh, flexibility and adaptability to the grid there's a, uh, not not many um, utilities are in a position to commit the um, the funds that would be required to make that happen right now to move the grid forward uh and that's starting to affect the business models and the credit ratings of these utilities so uh while while the question is are we are we prepared for these problems the the light sort essentially the light at the end of the tunnel is that the markets which many of the utilities the investor-owned utilities are um, afraid to to give any reason. The, they, the, the utilities don't want their investors to worry about the stability of their business model, but the markets are starting to worry whether the utility is is equipped to deal with these changes. Uh, just this morning, I believe, um, or last, this was two weeks ago. Excuse me, two weeks ago. Moody's um, gave regulated utilities the first negative outlook on their credit rating ever. Uh, 24 utilities were moved from positive, from stable to negative, and one was moved from positive to stable. And what that means is um, for investors in the market who are looking for um, assets to buy, the utility sector isn't as um, as much of a sure, sure thing as it used to be. And that's simply because of these technological changes and uh, um, the worry about the resilience of the grid. All these things will happen the markets are starting to believe they will happen. Um, and so the reason why I say it's the light at the end of the tunnel is that the utilities who are always worried about the markets, giving them a negative um, rating, now have a negative rating. And the best they can do right now is to start to pay a little bit more attention to 
the work that needs to happen to move them back into positive um, investment ratings. I guess one thing I've been wondering um, is why why it took Puerto Rico such a long time to get everything back up and running. Because, like, like I said, the the announcement that Prepa made that they had ninety nine point nine percent of people with power came out yesterday, July fourth. And yet the and the hurricane happened in September. Um, both Harvey and Irma happened earlier, but around that time, and those grids, th- those people got all their power back. I mean, they're still to some degree dealing with it, but the major, but like that number of like ninety nine percent of power being returned happened. In a, I can't, I can't give an exact time frame, but I'm, it was much shorter. It was a much shorter amount of time. Is that just because uh, the damage wasn't as the damage wasn't as extensive? Uh, was it because of a difference in the organization of the of the utilities there, or the partnerships that they that those regions had? I, I'm I'm curious about that piece of it. Yeah, yeah. So this this actually takes us. It's a, it's a it's a it's a great question because um, the U.S. is is one of the most advanced countries in the world. How how did it take us so long to bring power back to a U.S. region? Well, um, it goes back to apart from the the utility being constrained by lack of resources um, and just the the location, the logistical issues that Erin mentioned before. There's also I, I, I'd suggest, and I believe I'm not the only one suggesting this, this, this comes up a fair bit in these conversations. Um, the, the Stafford Act, and I'm not a regulatory person, regulation, regulatory industry person, or uh, I won't pretend to be, but it, it's um, a Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistant Act, Assistance Act that was signed into law in 1988 and amended from one um, amending one that was released in 1974 and what it what it sort of did was constrain the reconstruction to restoring the system instead of rebuilding the system rebuilding would have taken probably a shorter period in my opinion because you're working from a uh, blank slate in that issue. You don't have to put the the poles and the wires in the same places you put them before. The Stafford Act required that the reconstruction was system restoration, and so uh, that tends to, in my opinion, take a little bit more time. Your your you're not working with a blank slate. You're trying to clean up the mess that happened and recreate what you had before. Um, and that takes uh, a level of expertise that, while not more than what you would need for uh, rebuilding, it does mean you have to be constrained in how much uh, you can do beyond the limits of what was done before. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I guess it it was a it was sort of a different it was sort of a different situation. So the aftermath was handled a lot differently. Um, I 
definitely noticed um, that the shift in thinking around how much the utility has to change after you know, talking to utility employees, there is um, a lot of thought within these organizations on how their business model is going to evolve um, in ways that is less centered around physical assets. And so these ideas are popping up of utility as a platform and how are they are, are in the future, are they really just going to be acting as kind of a platform that's helping just manage uh, the power grid? So I think, yeah, there is that recognition um, of needing to change, but there are a lot of things that are keeping them from doing that around, um, yeah, around policy and uh, you know, the way utilities make money. And then, of course, there's always the people that are going to be concerned about um, reliability um, on the grid, especially when it comes to decentralized and distributed generation. So um, there's a lot of things that have to be taken into account um, when we think about how the utility is going to evolve. But I think people are thinking about all of those things, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, as you guys do, I do some some work with a few utilities, and um, the the conversations have definitely moved from the more oh what is going on to how can we uh, be part of whatever changes happen and. Uh, that that is a, a welcome uh, shift that, I, as you're suggesting, Erin, that we're all seeing across the industry. What what I what I do worry about is just uh, the size of these institutions and uh, the the speed that will be required to adapt, and whether that that. That that size will not be an impediment to the to the speed required, but there's definitely work going on. Um, we're starting to see some some utilities totally uh, shift their model. A lot of work is being done in Europe because they seem to, to from my experience, having worked in in Europe and then in the U.S. There's the we seem to lag by about three, four years, and um, uh, we can absolutely take lessons from from those markets, especially since they've they've had the 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 almost more distributed approach to the grid all along, and what they're now adding is the um, renewable energy assets to that distributed structure, where the U.S. had a centralized um, uh, grid structure that needs to move to distributed, if not totally, maybe not totally, um, and then add the renewable energy resources to it. So there's a lot we can learn from, from European utilities. We may have covered this on a podcast before, Dylan, and if you can remember, let me know. But I, over the past five or six months, um, I saw some data come out and I don't remember who it was from. I think it was some, some Navigant research um, that showed the amount of European companies um, partnering with, with North American utilities versus 
um, the amount of European companies acquiring your, uh, North American utilities. And there's an overwhelming skew towards acquisitions within the North American market, as opposed to partnerships um, from those European utilities, more European utilities are buying um, or trying to acquire as opposed to partner. And I think um, maybe that is due to uh, what they feel is a slow, slower innovation um, within U.S. utilities. So I think, you know, that will that will influence change a little faster um, as we get different people, you know, probably leading these organizations and in, in their long term strategy. Um, so it's, it's definitely something that we're going to that we're going to see come along. But um, I think it would be foolish for us to expect that every utility is going to get through this transformation unscathed. Um, you know, we, we may see the end of some of the biggest, best utilities, what have been traditionally the biggest and best utilities because they won't be able to transform and start to meet the, the new needs of the market. And um, that'll definitely be interesting to watch play out as well. Who's going to make it and, and who, who may not. Yeah, it, it, it will be very interesting. It's, 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 it's funny. I, I did some work and, um, one of the, I believe I've had this conversation with a few people on your team at Z Prime as well, is that if you look at every other industry, you tend to end up with only about five, two to five percent of the original class of companies in that industry that stay alive when um, disruption truly sets in. Um, and stay alive in the form they used to be, and they won't be stars of the new uh, mode of business in the industry. But they'll just be there. But only about five, two to five percent of them um, stay alive. And I've shared this with a few folks in the utility industry. And similar to how every small startup believes they will not be the eight out of every 10 startups that dies, um, eight out of every 10 utilities will die, but every utility doubts that it will be them, <laughs> you know? So we'll see how that plays out, but it, it might be a lot of acquisitions, a lot of mergers that consolidate uh, similar type utilities into bigger bigger companies but with um into a much bigger entity but with smaller footprints i believe i think that's a good place to leave this discussion for now uh thanks for coming on and sharing your insights with us shay thanks so much for having me it's, it's been good um and i look forward to, to working with you guys on more of these frankly oh absolutely thanks for you've been doing the research and I'm sure we'll have you back on whenever we need some, some insights from someone with their ear to the ground. Uh, Aaron, thanks for coming on and talking about grid resiliency and innovation with us. Yeah, Dylan, of course, you know, I, I always love coming on, coming on the podcast and it was really exciting to have Shay on. Um, he's really just been transitioning into being more involved with the Z Prime research team and he's definitely been great to, to learn from. I'm excited because Shay and I are actually
going to co-MC um, our event that we will be having in Austin, um, Start ETS on September 5th at, I believe the One World Theater, Shay and I are co-emceeing our um, pilot pitch competition. I, I believe that's the official name, Startup Competition, Pilot Pitch Competition. I, I get confused, but uh, we will be there. Um, we'll have some panels, um, a few a few fireside chats, I think with last year's winner. Um, but yeah, Start ETS, we will co-emcee it. Looking forward to it. I believe um, there is a, a website, which is Start 18.co um, and that's where they can go to register and um, see our list of judges we've had um, a lot of great judges commit to judging the pilot pitch competition and we have that list available on the website and then um, the agenda once it's more filled out will of course also be available on the website which is start 18.co Excellent plug. Don't even need me. All right. Well, uh, thank you both for coming on. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Uh, as, as you just heard, we kind of used the, we used the situation that uh, in Puerto Rico to kind of springboard about resiliency and things. But if you have uh, more insights about the process of rebuilding the grid in Puerto Rico, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so please, so you can email us at, you can email me at dylan.lockwood at zprime.com, D-Y-L-A-N, Lockwood, spelled like it sounds. Uh, or you can find us on social media at zprime underscore research, at D-Y-Lockwood, at Aaron underscore Hardick. And also let us, if you're not on the zprime mailing list, let us know if you want in on that survey. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you all next time.